You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Solar A Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, and Wattwatches, providing super smart devices to monitor and manage energy use. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson and I'm the editor of Renew Economy. And joining me as usual is ITK analyst David Leach. David, how are you? I'm very well, thanks, Giles. And I'm looking forward to a fairly exciting week in in terms of policy. And I'd like to welcome our special guest today. Absolutely. Um, Ivor Frischnett, the ex and just, just recently departed CEO of the Australian Renewable Energy Agency. Ivor, welcome to the program. Pleasure to be with you both. You were at, um, now remind us, you were at Arena right from its inception, as I remember. So I think the period was about six years or possibly a bit longer. Yeah, just just over six years. Um, and uh, that's right, I started back in 2012, mid-2012. Well, it's interesting. We've got, um, we've got as, as David sort of foreshadowed, we've got another interesting week coming upon us. The, um, the Labor energy policy will be unveiled, and it should be interesting, and we might get onto that a little bit later. But tell me, Evil, you've actually served um, probably... Uh, well, you, Arena was created by the Labor government. It was sort of then run mostly by the Liberal government. I think there was a time when they sought to reduce the funding and might have even sought to, to remove the authority. It's probably worth mentioning, Giles, that ARENA had a, had a budget of a billion dollars originally uh, that was re- uh, reduced Three, to 500... 3.2. 3.2 billion, yes, I was going to say. That was reduced eventually to 500 million, and I'm not sure how much it's spent in total either. Or to yeah, guess. yeah, no, that those numbers aren't quite right, but did, hmm. did reduce, so started with 3.2 and ended up with 2.1 one roughly so that that's where it is now of which about 400 million is left uncommitted ah that's where i got the uh, uh that's, a, <laughs> that's okay david that's okay so tell me um you were just just asking about um doing this doing this job under two different governments was there any difference in the way that you had to conduct your role oh well absolutely i actually think of it as three different governments Um, because there was the Labour government followed by the Abbott government, and the Abbott government um, had a policy of simply abolishing ARENA and and the Clean Energy Finance Corporation and anything else renewable that they could abolish, they did. Um, uh, (laughs) It was was very lucky for ARENA and the CEFC that uh, those agencies had everything they needed, their governance, their money, all in legislation. And if it weren't for that, there's no question that they'd be gone at this point. Um, The Turnbull government, when it came in, uh, was actually quite um, supportive of uh, both the agencies and of the transition and were overall just quite sensible about it. But but as, of course, you well know, they have... uh, they had some some issues from the right wing. So we had, um, as an agency, uh, there there was a challenge because the funding for Arena had been taken as a saving in the budget. Notwithstanding that there was legislation that protected the funding, it wasn't allocated within the government processes. So um, so there was quite a quite a challenge in um, post Turnbull's election of getting that money back onto the budget, uh, so that everybody was comfortable. 
uh, with with Arena spending money as it was entitled to do under under the legislation, and and it was through that process that some there was some argy bargy and some of the funding was was lost. But uh, overall, a very good outcome, and there was of course you know two point one billion dollars is still plenty of money. Absolutely, yes. So look, I mean, it's interesting that you sort of say that um, the reasonably the term of government was quite sensible and um, and reasonably supportive of the transition because that's not um, entirely what uh, we, we we got the picture of from the public discourse. But I guess that's the difference between sort of politics and and policies. Yeah, that um, that that's right, and and certainly you know um, Turnbull personally has a, a great interest in the space, and and um, and that came through again and again. That's really interesting. Let's go through some of the technologies um, that you talked about. I mean, what, what, what would you describe as your, I mean, I've got some specific questions about some technologies um, um, as, as we go through the interview, and I'm sure David does too. But let's just sort of talk about some of, what did you think of the, um, some of the major goals that um, Arena scored over the six years? Sure. The, the biggest one and probably the best known one is, is around large-scale solar. So um, not very many years ago, uh, wind was dramatically cheaper than than large-scale solar, and because the renewable the renewable energy target didn't differentiate between the two, only wind was being built in Australia, and uh, we did some work trying to figure out why that was because solar was getting built overseas, and it turned out that um, Australia simply didn't have any volume in the solar space. Um, and because there wasn't any volume, and we're talking large-scale solar here, uh, it means that costs were high. So if you're buying a commodity as a buyer of, um, call it renewable energy, you'd always go for the cheaper one, of course. And it was impossible for solar to just get a foothold um, because it was always un uncompetitive in a bidding situation. So Arena hypothesized that if, um, if the agency ran a big auction, um, we actually thought it would take two two auctions over the course of two to three years um, to to force enough volume into the system for um, costs in Australia to come down. And these are very country specific costs. So the cost of construction, the cost of capital uh, in the country, and and there's just a lot of learning involved, particularly in the construction. So to give you an example, you know most solar farms. Uh, the actual solar panels are supported on piles and they're driven into the ground. Um, on some of the early solar farms, they were uh, one pile was getting driven in every every four or five minutes. And um, towards the end of the more recent ones, they're sort of getting driven in through robotic means, uh, one every 30 or 40 seconds. Yes, so, I've seen those uh, machines running along on LinkedIn videos. It's quite impressive. And I, I think we also had the move to single axis tracking worldwide occurring at about the same time. That's right. That's right. But so the real difference that Arena caused in that case was to um, is to have a dozen or so projects be built in Australia all at around the same time, which caused the competition to really heat up and the contingency margins went away. People figured out how to drive piles quicker and of course all the other bits and pieces around construction that they just get better at and the risk goes down and the, the financiers get more comfortable and so the rates of return on the capital come down. And, uh, and now, as we all know, solar is competitive with wind. In fact, in, in many circumstances, uh, particularly in the north where it's sunnier, um, solar beats out wind on a cost basis. And, and in the southern windy bits, um, wind still wins, as it should. 
And I, I, I guess I think that some of the contractors like Tomlinson's probably wish they'd left the contingency factors in, but nevertheless. Uh, well, that's right. Some, you know, because the boom has been so successful, new, uh, new unpredictable or unpredicted contingencies arose around connection times and having to put in um, security measures, so system security uh, systems that nobody was anticipating. So, yeah, that's right. But that'll all get sorted out over time. Just to put a bit of perspective on that, this is the uh, reference to RCR Tomlinson, one of the biggest sort of engineering contractors in Australia. And um, some readers might remember that they had a $70 million or $57 million write down, sorry, on a $300 million project, a pair of projects actually in Queensland, um, um, up in North Queensland, uh, near Collinsville. And uh, their shares are currently suspended, and we're waiting with interest to see what the outcome of that is and whether it affects more solar farms. So, Evil Solar PV, you've—I mean, yes, I mean that was a that was a brilliant program, and um, and the results are really sort of quite clear, um, as you say, uh, solar costs coming down to um, roundabout wind and beating it in some areas. What then is the next immediate focus for uh, Arena? And, and, and I should be uh, butting in again, and just before Ivor goes on to that, just add that uh, not only have solar costs come down, but capacity factors have gone up, which I think is very important. In Queensland, they're probably over 30% now on an AC basis. And when you consider that the costs of firming uh, up the solar and wind, the higher the capacity factor in the wind and solar, the less firming that's required. And so I, I think that's an important achievement as well. That's right. And of course, the two technologies are complementary in many locations. It's windy in the late afternoon or evening and, of course, sunny during the day. And so you end up with a combined capacity factor, uh, which can be up in the 60s, um, which, which is dramatically better than each of the technologies on their own. That's right. Well, we've seen those solar, those solar wind hybrids um, in a variety of places now, haven't we? We've seen the very first co-located solar farms at Gullen Range and White Rock in New South Wales. We've seen them built in Kennedy. I think there's plans at um, Genix with the pumped hydro, um, Snowtown, um, a bunch of different places, really. That's right. And you add a little bit of storage and, and pretty soon you've got a, a flexible system that has pretty high availability. Ivor, as Giles said, uh, we're always interested uh, in this. Actually, I'm more interested in the current technologies, I've got to admit, but I know people love the new technologies. Um, and hydrogen seems to be one that's getting a lot of buzz now. I was part of an ARENA-funded study that probably ended up concluding hydrogen was a bit expensive just at the moment, but I think you've got some academic background in it as well or some uh, venture capital background there. How are you seeing its prospects? Yes, in fact, I have um, back in the early to mid 2000s, I, I ran for my sins a little hydrogen generation technology business in California. And there was the hydrogen highway initiative back then when, of course, Arnold Schwarzenegger made his um, converted his Hummer uh, to run on hydrogen uh, through much hoopla. So anyway, I have more history than I uh, than I care to have probably in this space. And it still is expensive. But there are two really interesting opportunities in my mind. One is around export. So um, uh, Japan and, and South Korea in particular are simply saying um, we want hydrogen and we want hydrogen to run our economy because we don't have fossil fuels locally. 
Um, we don't want to import fossil fuels. We don't have renewables locally, and we don't. Um, we ultimately want to be off carbon. So hydrogen is the best option. Now, uh, it's an expensive option, but it's not for us to question that. Uh, just like we don't question why the Chinese want our iron ore, we simply ship it to them. And as long as there's a long-term strategy to, um, to de demand that hydrogen, and there certainly is, um, I think we are an entity that is, is well-placed to export it. We have the open land, of course, and you can turn electricity into hydrogen via electrolysis uh, or something similar like ammonia and ship it. The IEA um, had, had a look at hydrogen and actually talked about the opportunities for green hydrogen in Australia. It did make the point, though, that um, currently electrolysis, electrolysis um, and um, solar and wind fuel, uh, renew, renewable fuel hydrogen is that much more expensive than more conventional means of hydrogen. And I guess there is some sort of fears that sort of hydrogen might be a bit of a Trojan horse for the gas industry or whatever. I mean, how do you see it? I mean, do you sort of see the future where hydrogen will and only be um, provided at scale by renewables? Well, un unlike um, electricity generation, where um, where renewables are cheaper than fossil fuels, I don't think we're going to get to that point anytime soon for um, for hydrogen, because the chemical process, uh, it fundamentally takes less energy uh, to separate this, the carbon and hydrogen atoms from a CH4 molecule. It takes less energy to break that apart than it takes to break H2O apart um, into hydrogen and oxygen, which is what electrolysis does. So therein lies a challenge. But this just comes down to policy decisions. Do we, or, or actually probably more importantly, do our trading partners like, like Japan, uh, South Korea, uh, perhaps China, do they want the, the decarbonized hydrogen? And um, all, well, uh, we're not too all sure, indications right? are, well, they're telling us they do. <laughs> They've also put a heck of a lot of money into that um, brown coal hydrogen plant down in Victoria, which I think is going to spend $500 million to produce three tonnes of hydrogen. So, Well, it is, it is a big, complex supply chain. So in the figuring out phase, I'm not sure it matters how you're getting it, um, uh, even though long term, I don't, I don't believe there's much of a future for brown hydrogen without carbon capture and storage. So if you can make carbon capture and storage work, great um, but if you can't then then it's going to be electrolysis and i think people have always missed the inefficiencies uh, or the energy costs of making carbon uh, capture and storage uh, work when i looked at the new south wales generators who used to talk about this quite a bit a few years ago they were saying that it was at least 30 percent extra electricity that had to be produced uh, to 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 get the carbon capture, never mind the and scrub it out, never mind the actual storage uh, part of it. I, I guess uh, also though, I, it's not for me to question how Japan goes about its policy. But uh, on the other hand, I look at AC uh, transmission and CWP's proposals, which no doubt seem politically very difficult to actually just run an AC cable and export the electricity directly as as seeming to be an economically viable alternative. Yeah, and that'd be terrific because um, why not have multiple ways to export our energy? I did want to talk a, another about another potential use of hydrogen that I think is really interesting and perhaps doesn't rely so much on the efficiency of conversion, which is making use of the existing natural gas network um, as a as a grid balancing technology. So. 
Um, we, we know that for um, there are going to be times of the day when there's um, either for security reasons or just because of an excess of, of generation capacity, we're going to want to um, have some way to spill uh, excess electricity. And, and so you can do that in multiple ways. One very easy way is just turn down the inverters so you're no longer exporting, exporting from the wind or solar generation. But a, a better way to do it, if you can make electrolyzers cheaply enough from a capital cost perspective, is just to generate hydrogen. And that can be done um, on a second-by-second -second basis and gives you security for the system. Or it can be done on an hourly basis and, and use up excess energy supply. And you've got storage ready-made in the form of um, natural gas lines. Um, now, not all natural gas lines can take hydrogen in high concentrations. I think most of them can take it in low concentrations, so talking 10% or something like that. Um, but you could fast forward 20 years or something like that and find that there's actually quite a bit of the low pressure gas distribution network that's ready today um, to take hydrogen already at, at high concentrations or even 100%. So you could potentially have highly localized grid balancing technology, right? So electrolyzers could be small. And so that would reduce or remove the worry that we currently have around too much rooftop generation in local areas, for example. So what's the difference then between um, electrolyzers at that scale and, um, and batteries in terms of performance and cost? Well, the big difference is what is the infrastructure that you need? And so if um, for batteries, you need wires, right, to carry the power. Um, for hydrogen, you need gas lines. And depending on the location, you might have one and not the other. And so uh, by using hydrogen in some locations, you might actually avoid building infrastructure. Um, uh, the flip side is also true. There are so true. There are going to be many places where the gas lines either don't exist or hydrogen, in which case you'd want to use the electricity infrastructure for that excess generation. My understanding too is the electrolyzer can actually react in the same speed as batteries. They're, they're, they're very quick to, to, to respond to any sort of disturbances and, and response to sort of changes in, in demand and um, etc. Yeah, not all of them. Um, some of them can and certainly the, uh, that's the intent that the new ones can do that. There's no theoretical reason why they can't but some of the older, old, very big ones have, just haven't been designed that way. However, I think, I think the future of wind and solar and the actual energy production in Australia um, uh, is, is pretty clear that those uh, two technologies can do an awful lot of the job. And so the, the perpetual fear uh, from the very beginning of renewable energy is what happens when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine. And it's, it, you know, it's turned out not to be a really a problem, uh, even as we get up to 15 and 20 percent. Um, but how do you see balancing being done? And I know Arena's put some money into, say, uh, Snowy 2. Do, do you see any front-running technology there, or do you see that in Australia's particular circumstances, it'll be some kind of portfolio of technologies that's ends up doing the balancing? I think that's right. It's important to think about a uh, about flexible capacity generally, as opposed to simply talking about storage, for example, or transmission, for example, as, as the answer. So what do I mean by flexible technology? At any given second, you have to have a match between 
the generation, the supply of energy, and the demand, so the load. So there needs to be an exact match, but either side can ramp up and down. And certainly renewable output can be ramped down very easily. In some circumstances, it can be ramped up a little bit as well. Um, and on the, on the load side, you, you can do a lot as well through demand management, through uh, storage, you know, batteries, pumped hydro. Um, I do think that the, um, the batteries and, and, uh, are going to be a near-term short duration solution that will roll out. So uh, the latest experience curve, learning curve um, number that I've heard is 18%. So for every doubling of installed capacity, costs come down 18%. Not quite as good as solar, which is up in the mid-20s, uh, but nevertheless, pretty steep curve, and we're still at low volume. So um, the costs are going to come down pretty quickly, I imagine. I don't see batteries providing us with many hours or days of storage, so that's where pumped hydro or perhaps gas peakers come in. As well as, you know, if you think about the demand management side, our economy is really designed around, and when I say economy, the energy using bit of the economy, particularly industrial users, they're designed around base load, steady production of electricity, because that's what the that's what the big fossil fuel plants could do. And so we designed our systems around that and have a remarkably flat load profile for the economy as a whole. Um, but what if we actually started designing our, our uses of energy to fluctuate up and down more flexibly with the, with, I think with, with, the with an aluminium smelter or, or even a data center uh, they won't be rushing into that well no they're not rushing into it but what if um, uh, what if they had the economic incentive at the design point when they're first designing the plant uh, to do that I, I'm sure that it would be there are much more efficient ways of do, of running loads and making them flexible than than we currently have because we've had the opposite incentive for the last hundred years. Uh, I, I think that's 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 probably right. I, I also wonder about the uh, economic market design in terms of uh, balancing. Um, you mentioned batteries being good at short durations of one or two hours, and as we look at the um, um, uh, duck curve ramping up in. Queensland in South Australia and uh, copying what's happened in California, you can you can knock an awful lot of the economic value uh, out of that with like just a couple of hours of of uh, peak su supply, which could come from batteries. And you know whichever technology gets built first, it'll leave a lot less room for the next one, which you might need. So say batteries were doing two hours every day and getting that uh, great hundred dollars a megawatt hour return then there's not going to be very much revenue for the long duration pumped hydro stuff, which is still going to be needed for, you know, the odd week or, or two. Yeah, and that, that's a dilemma that needs to be worked through. Um, and, and I suspect just having a few, uh, a few plants to actually try it out and see what happens. There's an awful lot of uncertainty about the future volatility of prices. Um, in the energy market, but clearly it's uh, uh, as more and more of these technologies come online, the volatility is going to reduce, which means, as you say, less revenue for them. Um, it, you could imagine that there still would be times 
um, you know, maybe it's the cloudy week or the cloudy three days in summer or something like that where uh, prices might be very high and and it works that it, it works out to give the, the plants sufficient revenue. You could also imagine gas peakers surviving for quite a long time if they have a relatively low usage profile, it wouldn't have much of a carbon impact. Mm. There's been some um, investments in uh, bioenergy recently um, in Queensland. I think um, even Matt Piper in New South Wales is talking about bioenergy. And there was a large plant at Quinana, which got some funding from Arena and I think the C um, CEFC recently. Give us a bit of a, a um, tell us a bit about bioenergy because there's, you know, th there's the constant questions about whether this does actually reduce emissions and, and, and how effective that is. What, what, what are your sort of um, concerns and, um, and enthusiasm about bioenergy? Well, the biggest point to understand about bioenergy is that there's not enough biomass on the planet to power the planet. Okay, so, so that's not... <laughs> so, so unlike, unlike sun and wind. <laughs> correct, yeah. So, so the start, I mean, you could do it theoretically, but we'd have to give up the food supply and we'd probably have to give up most of our open space national parks and so on as well. And, We're not and, doing you know, that. No, exactly. Having food is kind of a good thing. So um, having said that, there is there definitely is a role for bioenergy when you've got got a waste stream so think sewage waste um, think food scraps um, think um, pulp and paper mill waste uh, those are all uh, forms of biomass that you we can and should be turning into energy um, it usually the the reason that um, bioenergy doesn't have a great carbon pr profile. So um, just for your listeners, sometimes, um, for example, um, ethanol uh, can have quite a significant carbon profile in the growing and harvesting of it um, because, you know, fossil fuel powered machinery is being used to cut it and truck it and irrigate it and so on. Uh, so you could get the carbon profile out of the supply chain, but um, but usually the economics are so poor when there's a lot of transport involved and even even just um, the growing process. If you're growing a crop specifically for bioenergy, that makes the economics uh, relatively challenging. But if you've got a waste that you have to deal with anyway, um, there might even be a negative cost. In other words, somebody might even pay you to take that fuel that you can then turn into electricity or, or a liquid fuel. Or, or gas or something like that. I, I guess what concerns me, having followed the sugarcane industry in Brazil, is that sometimes the tail ends up wagging the dog and you, you uh, use as an excuse to cut down rainforest to grow sugarcane that you'll be able to make ethanol uh, from, from the waste or from the sugarcane um, when it would have been perhaps better not to have done it at all in the first place. But, but uh, things happen. Well, and without subsidies, not many of those schemes would actually pencil out, particularly once EVs start taking over. Giles, I'm thinking we uh, should start to um, think about the news of the week. What do you think? No, I've got a couple more questions from Ivor, actually. Ivor, you're... <laughs> I'm sorry about this. Ivor, no, I've got a... just a couple more questions. You're giving a speech uh, next week at the Australian National University. I think the title is something around 100% renewables. Give us a, a brief, a, a, a sneak preview. And, and I guess is, can we get to 100% renewables and will we? Well, it's really just, it's going to be a talk about the, the possibility of getting there. And uh, my view is we absolutely can. 
the question is, is a matter of cost and number of hiccups along the way. Um, but I think right now there's a, a lot of misinformation out there as to what's possible. To give you an example, Arena has a, n a number of off-grid systems that it supported um, that don't have any synchronous generation whatsoever. They, they just run for parts of the day. They run off a grid-forming battery, and that seems to work just fine. And if it works in a small grid, there's no good reason why it doesn't work in a big grid. That's really interesting. I agree with that. I, I, I've, I've never understood this thing about, I mean, it's just the way the grid's been designed historically. A torch doesn't need synchronous generation or synchronous condensers or anything. It just works. It's a circuit. Yeah, it's going to take a little while for everybody to get comfortable that the grid is going to work. And there are going to be issues around, uh, you know, legacy systems that need to be updated and replaced to, to make it um, fully secure. But there's no question that we can get there. In fact, you could even use old technology to get there. I think we did a back of the envelope at Arena a couple of years ago that you could put synchronous condensers in the whole NEM. Um, and have that be the only inertia in the whole system, and it would cost something like five billion dollars. Well, um, um, which we're is not cheap, but it's not, you know, it's not that insane either for the whole. Yeah. Game. Well, we're starting to see a few synchronous condensers being rolled out. I think they're going to be rolled out in um, in South Australia, so they don't have to burn gas. And um, and some of the new um, solar plants um, in what we call the sort of the rhombus of regret in Central Victoria, where they've got sort of. Uh, <laughs> Major, major, major some system strength issues. Um, um, I think the Kayamo, um solar farm is spending quite a lot of money on, on synchronous condensers. So, but so I think, Giles, as well, the great hope of the solar industry is we're going to have what, what Ivor, I think, was calling was these grid-forming in, in, in inverters. Isn't, isn't that right? Yeah, and there's, that's right. There's no question why that, that those systems would work. Um, the question is really around how do we harness digital technologies to keep them all coordinated and synchronized and to give every, everybody the confidence that they'll work. Because of course, you don't want to run a NEM-wide experiment just to see if it'll work and have a few blackouts along the way. So, so the, 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 these trials that you, you talked of before, that this is at King Island, etc., and, and places like that? Yeah, so King Island, and there's a couple others that they actually have a, um, they, they have a, a flywheel which provides them with carbon-free inertia. Um, but there's, there are actually a couple other places that just have grid-forming batteries. Mm. And flywheels aren't, you know, what they are. Flywheel is pretty low-tech. It's a, it's a big, heavy mass of steel that, that is attached to the end of a diesel generator. Well, it's a bit and like so, a synchronous condenser, isn't it? But I, th I think yes. that's so old-fashioned. I'm not saying there's it anything is. wrong with it, and there's nothing wrong with being old-fashioned, but anyone who's brought up in the digital age is going to think you can have... Uh, uh, clocks, digital clocks that synchronize with each other pretty much perfectly uh, from all of these inverters and probably do it way better and adjust. Um, someone else, Bruce Miller, is always explaining that a system with less physical inertia, it's actually easier to adjust. Well, certainly much quicker as the Hornsdale battery has shown. Indeed. Hey, um, Evil, um, over these years then, are you more confident about the future? Um, you've seen the technology, you've seen the politics. Does technology win out over politics? What's your... Uh, uh, do, do, do you leave Arena sort of pessimistic or, or, or reasonably optimistic, optimistic about the, the way forward? Yeah, I, I'm very optimistic. When I joined, the big challenge was just generation costs. Because with, with generation costs, way higher than fossil fuel costs um it was just always going to be an uphill battle that that 
battle has now been won and it's been won quicker than we all thought and so now that generation costs of renewables are significantly cheaper even with firming in most cases than than the alternative it just means that it's going to it's going to happen and most of the rest of the economy is going to electrify so if you win the if you win electricity in terms of turning it renewable the rest of the economy will follow and it's now just a matter of time and how bumpy the road is so um, so we've got the we've got um, we'll, we'll see from here into the news of the week and i'm going to ask you first i'm going to ask david um labor's unveiling its uh, electricity or its energy policy on thursday what would you like to see in an energy policy now whether it comes out in labor's on thursday or over the next year or two what what what, what do you see as the priorities Ivor? Oh, I thought that was a question for David. Oh, wait, um, David can go second on this one. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I mean, I, I'm just going to comment in a very general way. Um, anything that can bring stability to the system, um, have some long-term targets for carbon, for renewables that ideally many in the Australian community, not just politicians, but companies and, and the public can sign on to, that would just be wonderful because it's going to take years and years um, for the investors to have full confidence in the stability of the Australian system. So just, uh, and when I say system, I mean political system. So getting down that path um, and starting down that path where it's no longer contentious, like, like is the case in much of Europe, this is simply not contentious. We need to get there and that'll drop our costs. David? Uh, well, I certainly agree that, you know, as far as the wind and solar goes, the cost of capital, as I've said many times, is the is a major driver and the lower you can make that cost of capital uh, and it's one thing governments can do is if they do it right is to provide confidence then that's the lower the cost for consumer i think we want to avoid the boom and the bust scenario um, uh, coag energy council is encouraging the development of the integrated system plan and it's quite clear that some reconfiguration of transmission is going to be needed as the wind and solar share grows so uh, you know it's, it's just a, a steady pace of progress and uh, meanwhile, we have to survive scares, and uh, uh, I think everyone's going to be keeping a nervous eye on this summer. Um, uh, electricity futures prices have gone up in 2009 for FY19 and FY20. They're up, you know, 15% on last year, which is surprising, despite the new renewable energy coming on. And we've seen this um, uh, brown coal stations forced outage rate uh, jump up over the past four years from one or two percent or six years to to eight percent which is a huge you know the unreliability in the coal generation system uh and uh, continues to be a, a major concern so the trouble is from a political perspective um that uh you know if we have a major outage it's always going to be renewables that will get the blame uh even uh, even if it's nothing to do with them that's right. Yes. Well, it's interesting that um, even in Queensland this coming Wednesday, I think um, the forecast is for 9,000 9, megawatts of demand. Um, Queensland has about 13 or 14,000 megawatts in terms of um, thermal generation. That's gas, coal and, um, and hydro. But it can't seem to rally up enough. So it's sort of, you know, put a feeler out there to sort of try and get more to sort of actually sort of switch on and, and, and get on standby. Um, Ivor, some of the market rules and things like that, do, do, do we need a bit of an overhaul of those as well? 
I have a number of concerns around the market rules. One one is around um, the current ring fencing guidelines and just how the networks operate at the call at the edge of the grid. Um, AEMO has very little visibility there. Um, the networks have very little ability to operate on the customer side of to operate on the customer side of the meter. And yet, when you have to, um, it shouldn't matter whether that's which side of the meter that's on. It can be of great value to the grid and to the market, and yet it's either not visible or the value isn't um, can't can't be collected by the party that has the most to gain. So so yes, big overhauls needed. It's tricky territory because investors have made decisions, and it's um, uh, you know there'll always be winners and losers in these processes. So that's that's going to be really hard. Mm. David, any other news in the week um, that you want to touch on? No, sorry, Charles, that's that's it for me. <laughs> that's okay. No worries, Evo. So, what, what are you what are you what are you doing at the moment? Um, you 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 left um, uh, Arena um, a month or so ago. Um, what's 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 your plans? Uh, well, one thing that I I'm um, keen to try to help do is ensure that Arena has some funding into the future because um, the transition, of course, isn't complete yet. So, um, so, so that's an important thing that there needs to be an agency to support the transition uh, of renewables and try to make it as smooth as possible. Uh, aside from that, I've joined a uh, small board. Uh, it's called C4Net, which is a consortium between the Victorian government, uh, some of the network companies, and uh, some of the universities with the goal being to make better and more use of data in the energy space, um, support the rollout of new technologies through better use of data, making it available, privacy issues, all of that kind of thing. Um, talking to a couple other boards, um, a couple of advisory opportunities. So uh, I have, uh, I'm just at the tail end of helping with the transition to the new CEO, uh, Darren Miller at Arena. Oh, well, good, good. And is there any talk about extending the funding from Marina? Is, is that a political conversation that's going on at the moment and, and, and adding more? Uh, well, it's certainly, it's certainly a question that's being asked by the stakeholders quite a bit, because al although there is something a little short of 400 million still remaining to be committed, uh, if you have a big project like a big waste to energy plant, it takes a number of years to develop that project to the point where it can even get funded. Um, and if it needs funding to get away um, and you think that there's either no funding at the at the time when you need it or uh, you're uncertain about that then you're not going to start down the road it costs you millions of dollars and takes years of your time and we didn't even mention concentrating solar uh, technology thermal um, this time around but uh, there we go hello yep Oh, sorry. No, um, perhaps for Evo, you can um, you, you can touch on that. Has there been a um, has there been a formal application for the uh, Port Augusta solar tower, or are you unable to say now that you're outside of the uh, outside of the agency? Yeah, I, d I don't know the status um, of of that project. I, I do know that there was certainly there was historically there was certainly an application um, for funding for that project. 
and uh, oh, well, we'll wait and see look Evo, it's been fantastic having you on and um, I hope our listeners have enjoyed the conversation we've gone a bit over time but um, really great to get your perspective and look once again congratulations on your six years at Arena um, I think you've done an incredibly important job sort of putting the wheels in motion for the transition and sort of accelerating that and, um, and so good luck for the future thank you very much it's been a pleasure being on the show and I'd like to endorse uh, Giles's comments. And um, thanks, David. And um, we'll talk to you next week as well um, with another guest. And look, thanks to all the um, everyone listening out there. Thanks too to our sponsors, Solaray Energy and What Watches, for your continued support. And we'll be back again next week with another episode. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Solaray Energy, leading innovators of smart energy management technology. Experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, they're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solaray.com.au and secure your energy future today. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Wattwatches, makers of ultra-smart devices to manage electricity use and costs. Accurately monitor and control electrical circuits over the internet in real time. Visit whatwatches.com.au and take control of your energy use.